You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray. There's an outline of my sermon uh, on the welcome card that Alex mentioned earlier. So if that's useful for you, uh, please follow along. Uh, But we need to pray. Uh, I need God's help and we all need God's help. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, um, please do watch over us as we uh, gather together to listen to your word this afternoon. Uh, Please, Father, um, help me to be faithful and clear uh, and to present your word Uh, in such a way that by the power of your spirit it might grip our hearts and minds and help us all, Father, to uh, be among those uh, who truly tremble at your word, uh, trust it and receive it uh, and are willing to be changed by it for Jesus' glory. Amen. Uh, Well, I I don't know if you're familiar with this, but a a couple of weeks ago on September the 21st, you can Google it later on on if you like, uh, people around the world celebrated uh, what's called the International Day of Peace. Uh, Maybe you've never heard of it, the International Day of Peace, uh, but it's an initiative of the United Nations. Uh, Perhaps that's not surprising for you. And this is a bit of its spiel, its purpose. Uh, It is devoted uh, to strengthening the ideals of peace around the world, uh, both within and among all nations and peoples. This is the International Day of Peace to strengthen the bonds of peace, the ideals of peace. This this year's uh, the theme. Each year, the International Day of Peace has a particular theme. Uh, This year's theme was to take action, actions for peace. It was a global call to encourage individuals and kind of communities and nations to take concrete actions in the name of pursuing peace around the world. So I wonder how you feel, uh, perhaps you're hearing about this International Day of Peace for the first time uh, in these moments, but how do you feel about the fact uh, that we have an International Day of Peace? I wonder how that sits with you. As I was thinking about it this week, 
uh, even in light of a referendum uh, that was intended, at least, to seek peace and reconciliation. I was thinking, how do I feel about an International Day of Peace? I have mixed feelings. On the one hand, it's pretty encouraging, isn't it? It's encouraging because I, I suspect, like all of us, I'm someone who longs for peace. Maybe you sat there during the week watching the latest conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Massive bloodshed. Centuries of hostility and division. And you long for peace, don't you? We've seen similar scenes of devastation over the past couple of years in the Ukraine. It's hard not to watch those and not long for peace. I sit with Gabby. Gabby, my wife's an OT who works in mental health with people, uh, young people who've settled in Australia uh, as refugee families. Sat with her during the week listening to the latest story of a client that she was taking on. Uh, De-identified, of course. She's sharing the story. A story of a teenager whose parents were murdered, whose siblings were, some of them were raped who herself was assaulted and abused on her way to Australia. And you long for peace, don't you? And you think about yesterday's referendum and wherever you voted, yes or no, I hope all of us are on the same page of thinking it would be great if there were better relationships of peace and reconciliation with the first peoples of our country. And whether you think that was going to be achieved by a yes vote or a no vote, we long for peace, for true and lasting reconciliation. And so we hear there's an International Day of Peace and we think, yeah, encouraged. And yet on the other hand, I'm a little bit cynical and discouraged. You know, one of the initiatives of the International Day of Peace is to encourage people uh, to change their profile picture on social media. I'm thinking, sitting today, now maybe it would be, but sitting with that person, that young person that Gabby was talking to during the week, I don't know how much difference it would make to real feelings of division and hostility, violence, bloodshed, murder, for them to know that me as a privileged middle-class person in Melbourne had changed my profile pic on social media. We long for peace... But what is it? What action for peace is going to bring real peace? Now, this is kind of what we're diving into in this second half of Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Paul, in this passage, I think, says to us that longing for peace that all of us have is a good, holy, uh, God-honouring longing. Now, this world and this humanity is not as it should be, is not as God made it to be. It's hopelessly messed up. It is right to long for peace. And yet Paul also says that that peace that we long for will not be satisfied by a referendum or by an international day of peace. It will primarily be satisfied by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great action for peace that God has taken in sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to give his life on the cross and pay the cost of peace. So this is what we're exploring today. You know, maybe it's a bit of a heavy start, right? But we're diving right in to this whole theme of peace. Uh, please have your Bibles open. Let's take a look at verses 11 and 12, uh, where we see our deep need for peace. 
A deep need for peace. Uh, back in uh, verses 1 to 3, if you cast your eyes back, I think Alex even referenced this in her call to worship. Uh, Paul said uh, that in our sin, our disobedience, our rejection of God, all of us were alienated from him and his people. Every single person, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, that is uh, someone from a, a, an ethnic background that's not Jewish, Jew and Gentile alike, alienated from God and his people, in desperate need of peace with God and his people. And yet here in verses 11 and 12, Paul zooms in on the predominantly Gentile Christians that he's writing to in Ephesus. And he says, if you think about it, guys, you guys, in a sense, were even worse off than us Jews. Why does he make that case? Well, for a few different reasons. First, uh, he says, you were hated by God's people. I think that's what he means. If you look at verse 11, when he says, uh, you were called uncircumcised uh, by those who call themselves the circumcision, uh, which is done in the body by human hands. In the Old Testament, you, you may or may not know that the sons of Jewish parents were circumcised physically on the eighth day after they were born as an outward physical sign that they were members of God's people. Are they shared in a special covenant relationship with God? Uh, but that physical act of circumcision was only ever really supposed to be a sign of a deeper spiritual need, that their hearts needed to be circumcised. You can take that. Take that. I know that's a strange metaphor, but the idea is that our hearts need to be made new by the power of God's spirit. And yet God's people were so proud of the fact that God had given them this marker, this gift of circumcision, uh, that over time they came to use it as a means of thinking, a badge of honour, as it were, to think that they were accepted and blessed by God. And the other nations of the world uh, were, um, excuse me, were rejected by God, were living under his curse. They hated the uncircumcised Gentiles. That's what's going on in verse 11. It seems silly to us, but to call someone the uncircumcised uh, was to capture the hatred that the Jews had for the nations. Oh, they were hated by God's people. Uh, second, uh, they were also, uh, let me find my notes, uh, they were also separate from Christ. You might read that and think, well, aren't all of us, if you're not a Christian, separate from Christ? Like, why is this something distinctive of the nations of the world? Oh, I think Paul's saying uh, that the Gentiles were separate from Christ in that they, they didn't even have the hope of Christ. I think if you're growing up in a Jewish family, hearing the Old Testament scriptures taught, uh, you would have heard about this great promise that one day God was going to send the Christ, the Messiah, a special anointed king who would establish and rule over God's kingdom. As a Jew, an, Israel, um, an Israelite, you were not separate from that hope of Christ. But the Gentiles were. They were separate from Christ. And because they were excluded from citizenship in Israel, Paul says. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in other places, you can read that out of all the nations on the planet, God had chosen to set his love and affection upon the Israelites, the, the descendants of Abraham. It wasn't because they were bigger than other nations or better than any other nation. It was just because that's what God chose to do in his free, unmerited grace. 
But the other nations of the world, in a sense, therefore, were excluded from that special relationship with the God who made everyone and everything. And that's what Paul means when he says they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Again, that's maybe a little bit strange. We don't use the word covenant very much these days. Maybe occasionally it gets referenced at a marriage I've heard it like a marriage covenant. Uh, what happens when uh, there's a, a marriage ceremony? Uh, a man and a woman make public promises to one another that bind themselves to one another, that form a deep and lasting union. And that's what it means. When uh, God made binding promises to the people of Israel, and yet the nations of the world were foreigners to those promises. Those promises were not made to them, uh, but to only to the Jews. So what's Paul's conclusion? Take a look at the end of verse 12. What was the spiritual condition uh, of the Gentiles, the nations apart from Christ? They were without hope and without God. Notice that the main reason they're without hope is because they're without God. Now, of course, they weren't without gods, like the Gentile nations, including the Christians in Ephesus, had lots of gods, lots of different idols that they worshipped, or a full kind of assortment of gods. But they were without the true and living God of Israel. That's what Paul's saying. The God who truly did make everyone and give life to everyone are the only God that can give you the sure and certain hope of eternal life. To be without that God is to be without hope. So clearly for the Gentile Christians that Paul's writing to in Ephesus, there's a deep need for peace. And, in, and this is true of all of us. And maybe even for someone here perhaps who grew up in a Christian family and you might say, well, I can't really remember a time when I, don't be, I didn't believe in God or when I maybe even didn't, I can't remember a time when I didn't believe in Jesus. Even for you. There was a time when in your sin and transgressions you were separate from God's people, separate from Christ. There was a deep need for peace. And maybe you're here today and you still have this need for peace. You might be here checking out church, exploring Christianity, and you might even in this moment know that you are not at peace with God and his people. How is it that we can be at peace with God and his people? Paul explains in verses 13 to 16. It's because Christ has paid the cost of peace. If you take a look at verse 13, you'll see there that Paul says, but now, so this is what things once were like, verses 11 and 12, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying that through faith in Christ's death on the cross, those who were once far away from God, that's the Gentiles, the nations of the world, uh, they have been brought near to God. Why? Well, because if you think about it, the, the key way that Paul has been describing in Ephesians uh, what it means to be a Christian, uh, someone who's a Christian is someone who, spiritually speaking, is in Christ. They're united with the Lord Jesus Christ in a deep spiritual connection. They're clothed with Christ. Uh, they're clothed with Christ so deeply uh, that if you are in Christ Jesus, if you see here at the start of verse 13, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, spiritually speaking, what is true of Christ is true of you. 
Now take a look back a few verses, how Paul describes where Christ is right now in verses 4 to 7. He says there that the Christ uh, was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at God's right hand in heaven. But notice he also says that that's true of you if you are in Christ, if you've put your faith in Christ. Spiritually speaking, you have been raised with Christ, you've ascended with Christ, and you are seated at God's right hand in heaven. What is true of Christ is true of you if you are in Christ. So if Christ, God's Son, is at the right hand of God, his, uh, of God the Father in heaven, right, he could not be any nearer to God his Father if he tried. Like he is brought near. If that's true of Christ, it's true of you. You have been brought near to God in Christ Jesus. Which is why Paul says in verse 14, notice the way he puts it, Christ himself is our peace. Sometimes we, we might think, oh yeah, Christ makes peace possible, but in a kind of impersonal, transactional sense. You know, he deals with the kind of divine economics with his death at the cross. But that's not what Paul says, is it? He says the person of Christ himself is our peace. Why? Because it's being united with Christ. It's being in Christ. That means that you are at peace with God putting your faith in Christ and coming into this deep spiritual connection with him. Why is being in Christ so important? Putting your faith in Christ. Well, Paul explains, Christ has made the two groups, that is both Jew and Gentile, one group and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, that could be just a reference to the kind of emotional, relational, psychological hostility between Jews and Gentiles, but I think it's probably also a reference to an actual wall in the temple in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem temple had an outer court that the Gentiles were allowed to go into, and then there was a wall, you know, a dividing wall of hostility. And on the other side, the Jews were allowed to go in there, in the inner courts, why the Gentiles were told, come this far and no further. There's separation, there's division, there's a barrier. And what's Paul saying here in these verses? He's saying in Christ's death on the cross, he blew the wall apart. He set it aside. He destroyed it. He destroyed it. So now there is no separation, Paul says, not just between a person who is in Christ and God, but also between people who are in Christ and one another. The two have become one Paul says. How is that possible? How did Christ's death achieve this? Well, again, Paul explains in verse 15. Take a look in verse 15. How did Christ achieve this? Well, he did it by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. You'd be like, what? How did... Well, first of all, if you've read other parts of the Bible, you know that God's law is described as a good and pure and holy thing. So why does Paul say that God's law needs to be set aside? That's a, that's a bit confusing, right? I think it's a similar thing to the circumcision thing. See, God gave uh, his people, the people of Israel, uh, his law summarised in the Ten Commandments. Uh, and that was supposed to be a good gift for them, to tell them how to live as his people, how to reflect his holiness in the world, his character in the world. 
And yet it sort of became perverted. Uh, They started to think, over centuries I guess, that what was most important was not actually keeping the law or obeying the law, but just possessing the law. Just having the law, the rules given by God, uh, was seen to make them spiritually superior to the Gentiles and to make them acceptable to God. It was a sign that they were accepted by God and blessed by God and the Gentiles were rejected by God and cursed by God. So I think what Paul's saying in this verse is the law as a means of earning acceptance with God had to be set aside. And Christ did that, how? On the cross, in his flesh on the cross. How did he do that? Well, the law itself, you can chase it up later on, Deuteronomy chapter 21 says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So I think what Paul's saying is that upon the cross, Christ bore the full curse of our disobedience to God's law in our place. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So that through faith in him, we can experience blessing that we don't deserve. The full blessing of being accepted by God. Christ was rejected and cursed by God upon the cross so that we might be accepted and blessed by God. And that's true, Paul says, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Because even the best Jew, even the best Christian these days who might pride themselves on their obedience to God's law. I suspect that if we're honest, we all fall short of our own imperfect standards every day, let alone God's perfect standards. All of us need this peace. All of us need to be in Christ if we want to be near to God rather than far away from God, if we want to be accepted by God rather than rejected, if we want to be blessed by God rather than cursed, we must be in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's driving home. And so Paul says, what was Christ's purpose in this in verse 15? His purpose in this was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. That's out of the two. The Jewish people and all the nations of the world creating one new humanity, thus making peace... And in one body to reconcile both of them, both Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Why is it that we all long for peace? I think what Paul's saying here is that it's because the first humanity that God made in Adam, right back at the start of the Bible, is a mess. We see that in the world, some of the examples I shared at the start. The first humanity that God made in Adam is a mess. And so what has God done? He's entered into the world in Christ. He's upon the cross, paid the cost for all of our mess, all of our sin, all of our division and hostility has been paid for once and for all in full. And God, Paul says, is making a new humanity in Christ Jesus. So as Christians, you might be by ethnic background, Chinese, or you might be Indian, or you might be Australian, or you might be Greek, but that's not primarily who we are. We're Christians. We're in Christ Jesus. That's not to say that your ethnic background doesn't matter, but Paul's saying that in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile have become one. They're primarily in Christ. 
This is the new humanity that is at peace with God and with one another, truly at peace. Why? Because Christ has paid the cost of peace. That's verses 13 to 16. And so what's some, uh, I guess, implications of this? I think it's that we as Christians have unique, deep spiritual resources to actually forgive one another and live at peace with one another. Unique, like no one, no other system of belief, as far as I can tell, provides the same resources that we have. On the one hand, when you come to believe in Christ and you're in Christ, you believe the good news of being at peace with God through Christ, uh, you understand uh, that if someone has really hurt you and wounded you, not just like a small disappointment or a slight, but something that has really hit you hard, someone sinned against you. Understanding the gospel, looking at the cross, tells you that that person's sin against you really did matter. Right? Because the cross tells us that our sins against one another and against God mattered so much that Christ, the eternal Son of God, had to die for them. That's how serious sin is. And so the good news about being a Christian is you no longer have to just pretend that people's sins or faults don't matter. You don't have to sweep it under the carpet. You can say it did matter. It mattered so much that Christ had to die for it. And I think this is absolutely critically important because in my experience, efforts for people to forgive one another and make peace so often fail because one or both of the parties say, yeah, but if I forgive that person, I'm saying that how they hurt me doesn't matter. As Christians, we say no. What you're saying is that it mattered so much that Christ had to die for it. It just leads to the second thing. It's because Christ has paid the price for their sin, you don't have to make them pay. This is the spiritual resources we have as Christians. For a brother in Christ has sinned against you, I'm not saying it's not complicated, I'm not saying the hurt's not hard to work through, but we do have spiritual resources in the gospel of peace to say Christ has paid the cost for for sin for their sin, for my brother or sister's sin. And I no longer have to make them pay for that. I'm free to forgive and be reconciled with them. I think that's even true, potentially. Of course, that's easier if the brother or sister acknowledges their sin and repents of it. But even if they don't, you still, I don't think, the the gospel, the good news of Christianity still gives you resources that you don't have to resort to, I guess, continuing a cycle of violence and hatred. You know, they hurt me, so I'll hurt you. Why? Because we believe that Christ is going to return as the judge over all and he'll settle everything with perfect justice in the end. He'll take up the sword of justice, so we don't have to take it up now. So, uh, like, diving into some deep waters, but let's not pretend. There are deep hurts that all of us live with, people that we struggle to forgive, and I'm sure there are good reasons in many of those situations. I'm, I'm definitely not trying to simplify incredibly complex situations. All I'm saying is, I think Paul's saying that in the gospel of peace we have deep spiritual resources to actually be able, over time, by the power of God's Spirit, forgive one another 
and live at peace with one another because Christ has paid the cost of peace. And that's good news, isn't it? That Christ has paid the cost of peace so we can be at peace with God and others. And so Paul talks about that good news that must be proclaimed, verses 17 and 18. Uh, Take a look there at verse 17. Uh, Paul says, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. It's a little bit confusing. You might be like, wait a second, like how did Christ go to Ephesus and preach peace to them? Like, I don't remember any time in the Gospels when he did that. I I think what Paul's saying is that uh, when Christ's people, empowered by the Spirit, go to different places, to different people, and, and preach the gospel of peace to them, then it's as if Christ himself is going. And saying to people, don't you know that upon the cross I paid the cost of peace? Don't you know that if you believe in me, you will be at peace with God and his people forever? So Paul says this is what's happened. The gospel of peace has gone out into the world to those who were uh, were near, that is to the Jews, and to those who were far away, the Gentiles. And the result of that, Paul says, is in verse 18. For through Christ, we both, uh, both Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. So to be in Christ, to believe the good news of peace, is to be accepted into the very life of God. That's what Paul says. Couldn't get much closer. You have free and unlimited access to God the Father through faith in Christ, God's Son, by the power of God the Spirit. We've been brought near to God and to one another through Christ. Uh, And so in verses 19 to 22, Paul talks about us, the church, us, the people of Christ, uh, the the people of peace, uh, the church, the new humanity that God is making in Christ. Three different pictures for the most part in these verses. Take a look in verse 19. Uh, You'll see, first of all, that that Paul says uh, that we as the church are fellow citizens. Like we're we're members of a new nation. As I said earlier, we're not primarily Australians, we're Christians. Members of a new nation. We are in Christ Jesus. Heavenly, citizens of heaven. We're also fellow children. You'll see there in verse 19, brothers and sisters, because we're members of God's household, God's family. And third, verses 20 to 22, where you could say fellow stones being built together, joined together in what Paul calls God's dwelling place, God's temple. Now, you could do heaps on each of these things. I mainly want you to notice how each of the different images for who we are as the church, as God's people, uh, is a little bit more intimate than the one before. I think Paul's driving home the peace and connection and closeness thing. So if you think that we're fellow citizens, what's our relationship with God? God is our king. We live in the same nation as God. But as fellow children, members of God's household, God is our father. Right? Were we in the same house of God? Uh, but as fellow stones, God's so close to us, Paul says, uh, that he's, just not, he's not just near us, he's in us. By the power of his spirit, he lives among us. Uh, this is the kind of intimacy, peace, access that we have through Christ's death on the cross. Again, we see 
We couldn't be any closer to God if we tried. And Paul also says you really couldn't be any closer to one another. Think about the metaphors, the images for the church again. Our fellow citizens, like here in Australia, could be thousands of kilometres from one another. Like we're close in a sense, but not that close. Fellow children, especially young children, typically live in the same house, but fellow stones are like cemented to one another. They're tight. They're intimate. Deeply connected. And that's what Paul's saying. God has achieved through Christ's death on the cross. Intimacy, connection, peace with God and with one another. This is the great action for peace that the God of all the world has taken in Christ Jesus, his son. It's the hope of the world. So how might, what it might look like for us to be these people together, to live out these images for the church. Uh, two quick thoughts uh, before we finish. Uh, the first is, uh, I reckon that the image of us being members of the same household really puts the spotlight on the importance of hospitality. You know, students, uh, at least at times, so that's a bit, but students study together, right? That's what students do. Uh, colleagues work together. Sports players play together in a game. But children, families, do life together. That's what we are, members of the same household. And so it's fitting for us to share life with one another, to open our hearts, to open our homes to one another. It's why things like the newcomer's lunch that Rosie Pike hosted earlier today, really important. Not just because it's a nice thing, but because it's about the gospel. God, at great cost to himself in the blood of Christ on the cross, has shown radical hospitality to us. So we're a people who are hospitable to one another. It's why Hospitality Fortnight, again, earlier this year, it was really important because it's a gospel thing. It's about us living out the gospel together as members of the same household, sharing life together, sharing food together, laughing and crying and just enjoying one another. That's the first image. Uh, uh, the second, maybe, implication uh, is to do with the, the temple kind of idea. Uh, and you'll notice in that uh, that God's transforming power, the power of his spirit, dwells. Of course, there are other verses that talk about individual Christians uh, being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Like, I know that. But there's also a corporate sense in which we, together, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I want to suggest that if you really want to experience God's transforming power in your life, this means that you have to be deeply connected with the church. Right? Because I think in God's plan, it's as we love one another and serve one another and teach one another and correct one another and rebuke one another that we experience the power of the Spirit and we're transformed and we become more like Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you can't change at all if you're kind of a lone Christian who's filled with the Spirit. But in God's plan, the plan for change is that we would be deeply connected with one another as the church, as his temple. So just to finish, why is it then, if God has done this great work in Christ uh, to bring us near to him and to one another, to bring peace and intimacy and connection, why is it that often we don't feel that close with other Christians? Now, maybe that's not your experience. Maybe you feel wonderfully close with Christians. 
But I've spoken to many people who are like, well, that's all nice, Aaron, but that's not my experience. I'm happy to be at church. But to be honest, I don't feel that connected. And there could be all sorts of reasons for that. I'm happy to chat about it later on. Uh, it might be different personalities connect, find it easier to connect or different emotional well-being or life stage or tiredness or stress levels or past hurts and experiences with church and Christians and whatever that are, are just really hard to work through and get in the way of the sense of connection with other Christians. But I do just want to dwell on this idea uh, that Christ is our chief cornerstone. Right? The thing that primarily gives us this deep sense of connection with one another as Christians is our shared perspective, our shared relationship with Christ. I can feel deeply connected with other Melbourne supporters because we support the same footy team. You might feel deeply connected with people from the same ethnic background as you because you're of the same ethnic background, you see. Uh, others might be deep... Uh, my, my grandfather used to collect stamps... He would go to the philatelic society and they'd get off, you know, with their shared passion for stamp collecting, right? And no one ever sends uh, mail that way these days, do they? But anyway, but that's not what unites us as Christians. What unites us is our shared relationship with Christ. He is our chief cornerstone. And when Paul says cornerstone, he's saying that the Christ in the ancient world, in an ancient building, the cornerstone was the most important stone in the building. Maybe you've heard this before. The stone that everything was oriented toward, shaped the whole building. Everything was lined up with the cornerstone. And I just want to say that's important because I think sometimes the reason why we don't feel as connected with other Christians is that something or someone else is kind of functioning as the chief cornerstone of our lives. So it's not that maybe you're not a Christian, although you might not be a Christian, you ought to believe in Jesus today and trust that he paid the cost of peace for you. But it could be that you're a Christian, but in a sense, Jesus is on the fringes of your life rather than the chief cornerstone. He's like a, a brick but not the central brick. Someone or something else is the, the central person or force that, that shapes every single part of your life. And so you don't feel as connected with other Christians because what unites us is our relationship with Christ. He is our chief cornerstone. And I want to say that the way uh, that Christ moves uh, from the fringes of our hearts to the centre of our hearts, uh, from an important brick in our lives to our chief cornerstone is by us reflecting together on what Christ did for us at the cross. I think that's what we have to do. So that we remember that what Paul hints at in this passage, you know, Christ uh, in Psalm 118 verse 22, the psalmist says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. How is it that Christ makes it possible for us to be accepted by God? It's because he was rejected upon the cross. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. How is it that we who were once far away from God, who were once foreigners to God and his people, can be brought near and become children in his household? Well, it's because Christ, the only beloved son of God, was willing to leave his father's house and be cast out of his father's presence upon the cross. He was willing to become a foreigner, as it were, to be forsaken by God his Father, that you might be welcomed in. 
I want to suggest that it's reflecting on that personally and together that will move Christ from the edges of our hearts to the centre of our hearts such that he becomes our all the more, in practice, our shared cornerstone and will experience all the more the peace and unity and connection that Paul describes in this passage. Uh, let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, uh, I pray that... Um, Things that I've said this afternoon that are of you and true of your word would take root in our hearts and minds and bring change to us as individuals and as a church. And I pray that if I've misspoken or said things that are unhelpful, that those things wouldn't get in the way of the seed of your word bearing fruit. Please, Father, bring new life and growth and change by the power of your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.